good morning to everybody. We're going to continue looking through the epistle of Jude together today. So we had a week-long break, uh, actually a two-week break since the last time. So I want to do a little bit extra um, uh, refresher for those of you who maybe have missed a week or two or anybody who just had a really busy couple weeks. So um, we are looking together at the letter of Jude. So along with teaching through the book of Jude, one of the things that I've mentioned consistently is that I, I believe passionately, right? My responsibility as a, a minister of the gospel is not just to tell you what God's word says, but to teach you how to go to God's word yourself, right? To see what it says. So I've tried to be pretty forthright as we've been working through what's my methodology or my approach to understanding God's word. Um, And what I'm using here is something simple that I learned in my undergrad from a very helpful little book called Grasping God's Word. So it's just a five-step approach to go into the text of God's Word. So the first step is grasping the text in their town, understanding what did this mean to the original audience, right? We need to know what it meant to them before we can begin to grasp what it should mean for us today. Second, measuring the width of the river to cross, understanding what's the differences between them and us, right? Could be um, context, could be culture, could even be place in redemptive history. So understanding those differences, right, so that then we can begin to cross the principalizing bridge, right? In other words, once we understand the differences between them and us, we're able to suss out some of the just details, Right, of the text and understand what is the universal meaning of this text right, that applies regardless of time and culture. <clears throat> okay, so once we cross that principalizing bridge, we understand this is what the text says to them and says to us today. Right, then we start to consult the biblical map. Right, and this is where we talk about checking your homework. If you are the first person in the history of the church to ever come to this text, with that particular understanding of the meaning of the text, think again, okay? Right, scripture interprets scripture, as Nick mentioned today in his sermon. Um, And also we have a wealth of resources in terms of brothers and sisters, saints who have gone on before us. So finally, once we have just double-checked our homework, right, we definitely know that the principle that we're pulling out of the text is the main message of the text, Right, then we begin to apply it to our current context, grasping the text in our town. Right, so some things that we've tried to understand thus far so that we can grasp the meaning of the text in its original context and begin to apply a principle. First, who is the author? Well, the author, I believe, very firmly, is Jude, the brother of James, bishop of Jerusalem in the first century, and also brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We think that he came to believe in Jesus sometime between the resurrection and the ascension um, uh, before Pentecost. He's serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee sometime in the latter half of the first century. So then we try to understand who were Jude's intended audience. We believe that these are first-generation Gentile, uh, sorry, not Gentile, Jewish Christians living in Galilee, right, among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. 
The genre of Jude is a Jewish apocalyptic style, which helps us to identify a little bit closer what the date of this letter could be. That was a very popular style in a very specific period of time in the first century A.D. before 70 A.D., right, with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jude is also really steeped in Greek speech rhetoric, as well as Jewish midrash and pesher hermeneutics. So the date for Jude, I'm going to place it in a 10-year window, sometime approximately between 48 and 50 A.D., right, which makes it very early. Um, a very early letter. This is before the Pauline letters actually started to be distributed. So what was Jude's purpose for writing? He tells us himself, right, at the very beginning of his letter, he indicates his longstanding intention to communicate with these churches, um, which that has become even more urgent by a crisis that has arisen. And he desires to urge his audience to continue for the faith, that has been once for all handed down. So a couple weeks ago, we started to ask the question, what is it that Jude has to tell us about his opponents? Well, first, he tells us that long ago they were destined for condemnation. He seems to believe that they were the subject of prophetic condemnation, right? which um, I would identify as being in First Enoch, which is an extra canonical book. He calls them ungodly people, and this is a term that shows up a lot in the Greek Old Testament as well as in the New Testament and is always placed in contrast with the righteous, right? And Jude is especially emphasizing these people, um, how they are constantly um, overruling the law of God. Antinomianism, right? Two words here, anti-against. Nomianism being against the law. And third, he tells us that they are perverting grace into sensuality. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, most certainly, they... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. Would anybody mind grabbing me a, a cup of water? Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Jason. They are perverting grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. In other words, they're, they're doing what Paul's opponents in his letter to the Romans appear to be doing, which is taking the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as a license to do whatever they want to do, right? ignoring the actual law of God. And lastly, he says that they are denying Jesus Christ. So rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, Jesus tells us in the Gospels that he did not come to. <clears throat> Thank you, Jason. That he did not come to subvert the law, right? But he came to fulfill it. And these folks are denying that, and they've become a law unto themselves. So two weeks ago, we began to ask the question, what does Jude tell us about God's past judgment? He actually provides us with three examples from the past. And the first one that we looked at two weeks ago were the unbelieving um, post-Exodus Israel, right, after leaving Egypt. Okay, and so that's a direct reference to the Pentateuch Numbers chapters 13 and 14. So in that story, there's a discrepancy between what God has said and the message of the returned spies, right? Remember, Moses sends spies into the promised land of Canaan so that they can survey it, come back and give a report to the people. 
And the spies come back saying to them, well, yeah, it is a good land, but it's full of giants, great cities, and we don't stand a chance, right? Now, the people of Israel knew what God had commanded, and they knew from very, very personal experience that God was mighty to save, right? They lived through um, the ten plagues of Egypt, right? They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Um, They've been fed by God with manna from heaven. They've uh, been nourished with water from the rock. They knew that God was capable of doing what he had promised he would do. And yet they were still influenced by those who would challenge the character and the instruction of God. And ultimately they rebelled. The result of this is that God curses the people, right? Everyone, every single person over the age of 20, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, die in the wilderness over the next 40 years. So what's the principle, right, that we can take away from this? Well, big idea, faithlessness, right, believing neither the power nor the command of God provokes God's wrath and punishment, right? Similarly, Jude tells us his opponents are challenging Jesus, right? Despotain kai kurion, right, the master and the Lord, And Jude is expecting a similar judgment against his opponents. Okay, so the second example that Jude gives to us is that of the fallen angels. Now, this one's kind of tricky. We don't have a really clear account of this in canon um, of Scripture, but it is something that's very clear coming out of 1 Enoch 6 through 11. So, and in that account, right, this is an expanded view of the flood narrative that we have in Genesis chapter 6, right? And from Enoch, Enoch tells us that the sons of God, um, which are angelic beings, these are the same sons of God that are referenced in Genesis 6, as well as in Job 1 and 2. These folks are presented by Enoch as angels, and these angels took human women as wives and bore children, So in addition to their illicit sexual deeds, these angels are said to have taught humanity to perform charms and spells, witchcraft, astrology, warfare, as well as knowledge of sexual perversion. Their children with the daughters of men were giants, according to Enoch, right? In fact, they were the Nephilim that are referenced, uh, according to Enoch anyway, in Genesis, the Nephilim who oppressed humanity, and drank the blood of all kinds of creatures. Well, if you're familiar with with Leviticus, you know that that is bad news. So the action of these angels, these sons of God, provoked the wrath of God, resulting in the apocalyptic flood, sparing only Noah and his family, as well as the eternal torment and imprisonment of those angelic beings in hell. Right? So, again, the principle that we're supposed to take away from that particular narrative. Rebellion against God by abandoning his creational purpose for us. That's what these angels were doing. They were stepping away from their responsibility in heaven. Right? And they were taking unnatural relationships right, with human women. Abandoning his creational purpose for us and teaching or encouraging others to do the same provokes God's wrath and punishment. Starting to see a theme here, right? So, interestingly, (laughs) 
To ensure that this point is not missed, uh, Moses in Genesis actually doubles down on this message immediately following the flood narrative. So he, he tells us, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. This is a euphemism, right? Ham actually rapes his father. He um, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So we've got some interconnectedness that's happening in these three illustrations. Right? We've got the people who are fearful about going into the promised land because who is living in the promised land? The Nephilim. Right? The giants. We learn more about the Nephilim from this account of fallen angels. <clears throat> All right, so in this account of the fallen angels, that's followed up by a story about this curse against Canaan. And we're going to pick up there with the third illustration. So if you would, let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we're picking up with our third example. Just going to go back and read to you these verses from Jude, these three examples. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now our third example. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So our third example here, Sodom and Gomorrah, right, which comes from Genesis, uh, the latter part of chapter 18 and the entirety of chapter 19. So let's look at that text together. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become great and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, 
and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. He doesn't have a lot of faith, right, in, in, the, uh, in the Sodomites here. Suppose 20 are found there. And the Lord answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, oh, let the Lord not be angry. I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. The Lord answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels who had previously been with Abraham came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords. Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. 
And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, This city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth, and when Lot came to Zoar, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Thus far, the reading of God's word. All right, so Sodom and Gomorrah, big question. The inhabitants of these cities were the descendants of Ham and Canaan. So we know that they were therefore subject to that curse from Genesis 9, right? Ham, who looked upon his father's nakedness, his son's descendants, the people of Canaan, were also cursed to be servants to their brothers. Okay, but what was the sin of the Sodomites? 
That curse does impose servitude upon them, but it, it doesn't imply destruction. Now, you may think that the answer to this question is obvious, but in recent decades, traditional understanding has been challenged vehemently. The reason for this should be fairly obvious if you've been paying attention to anything for at least the last 10 years. More recent interpretations of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah have suggested the possibilities of idolatry. Perhaps their sin was social injustice, perhaps inhospitality. Or the Sodomites' lack of concern for consent before sex. Of course, all of this is in an effort to nullify the traditional interpretation that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was, in fact, homosexuality. So we can rule out idolatry straight away. Nothing in the text would indicate that to be an issue in this city. Uh, Nahum Sarna, in his commentary, actually writes... The indictment of Sodom lies entirely in the moral realm. There is no hint of cultic offense, no whisper of idolatry. As with the flood story, the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative assumes the existence of a universal moral law that God expects all humankind to follow. So social injustice is a big buzzword these days, but its meaning is often in the eye of the beholder. Certainly one could point out the injustice of how readily Lot offers up his daughters to be raped by the crowd as an example of patriarchy at its worst. But you wouldn't really be understanding the text from the view of the original audience, which, going back to where we started today, step one is grasping the text in their town. This is not an indication of Lot's low view of his female family members. Rather, it is an indication of just how seriously Lot took his responsibility to protect the guests that he invited into his home. Culturally, the inhospitability of the men of Sodom was a serious faux pas. But was inhospitability really a reason for God to bring utter destruction on the city, all of its inhabitants, down to the grass on the ground? Some have argued that there was nothing sexual about the events of Genesis 19 at all. After all, the men of Sodom only wanted Lot's guests to come out so that they could know them. More on that to come. Others have not denied that this was a sexually charged interaction, but emphasized the fact that consent is conspicuously absent. So let's talk about this. First, I want to deal with the question about whether or not this story is, in fact, talking about sex. The men of Sodom demanded of Lot, what are, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, if you've spent much time reading the Bible, then you know very well that this is a common euphemism, that we may know them. Right. The intent of the men of Sodom, both young and old, every one to the last man, was to commit homosexual rape against Lot's visitors. What I think is interesting about this is that no one questions that Lot's counteroffer to the men of Sodom was that he would allow them to rape his daughters. It says in the text specifically, who had not known any man. It's the exact same word. Okay, so... 
if we're going to take the social justice position and say that, you know, the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah was that they, they didn't treat women with dignity and respect because Lot was willing to let the men rape them, then the fact that they had not known any men is sexual, and therefore the intent of the men of the city was also sexual. To say that the sin of the Sodomites was rape is certain, right? They weren't asking for consent, but that does not negate the reality that the homosexual nature of this incident was more than just a side detail. What Genesis 19 merely implies to us is more than explicitly named elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, so elsewhere in the Torah, it's clear that this is regarded as one of the abhorrent inclinations of the Canaanites. If we look together in Leviticus chapter 18, right, the context of this chapter, right, in verse 3, Moses tells us, You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then he starts to list out all of the various vices of the Canaanite people. When we get down to verse 22, he says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. That is an abomination. All right, so to make sure that we don't miss the point, it shows up again two chapters later in Leviticus 20. So this time he specifically tells us, Moses tells us, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then he clarifies in verse 23, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Okay? Was there social injustice happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm, I'm sure. We live in a broken world and social injustice happens everywhere, right, that, that the sun shines. <clears throat> Was there an issue of lack of consent? Sure, absolutely. God is unhappy about that aspect, okay? But it does not take away the traditional understanding Right, of, of the issue in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was specifically that men were giving up natural relationships with women in favor of sexual relationships with other men. So one item of interest to me here, and this is just totally a side thing, but it's the similarity between the Sodom and Gomorrah story and the flood story and how they both end. So according to First Enoch, the rebellion of the angels and their sexual relations with the daughters of men incited God to flood the earth. Genesis is also clear that the wickedness of the men of Sodom, especially their sexual sin, incited God to burn their city to the ground. Now after the flood subsides with the flood narrative, we have this strange and perverse account of Ham having some sort of sexual interaction with his father who is drunk. The very thing that led to the destruction by the flood happens immediately after the flood subsides. Likewise, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have a similarly strange and perverse account of the daughters of Lot. <clears throat> 
So the unbridled wickedness of the city, their sodomy, um, right incites God's wrath. Lot is urged to flee, but he lingers. Eventually his guests seize him, his wife, his daughters. Out of God's mercy, we're told in the text, which I think is powerful. And they remove them from the city. Fire from heaven rains down on the city, destroying it and all its inhabitants. Lot's wife turns back and becomes a casualty. Okay, so principle here. Sexual immorality and the pursuit of unnatural desire provokes God's wrath and punishment. We've seen a theme here with all three of these examples that Jude's provided to us, right? So faithlessness and rebellion against God incites God's wrath and punishment. Um, leaving the place that God has created you and pursuing unnatural relations provokes God's wrath and punishment. Sexual immorality in the pursuit of unnatural desire provokes God's wrath and judgment. So that leads us to what I was hinting at a moment ago. Um, so Moses... In Genesis, right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, tells us this interesting story. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you will go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. I just think that it's incredible, right? We've, We've got the flood narrative. The thing that incited the flood, as soon as the flood is, uh, is resolved, happens immediately. We have the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah which incites the wrath of God to destroy the city. As soon as the city is destroyed, what happens next? Exactly the kind of thing um, that caused God to destroy the city to begin with. It says something to us about anthropology and the nature of humanity to a certain degree. Um, But I I think it also says something about the character of God and his and his goodness and his mercy and his forbearance with us. We know that Genesis was written by Moses and his original audience were the post-Exodus Israelites about to take possession of the land, which coincidentally is occupied by who? The Canaanites, the descendants of Ham. Who else? The Moabites <coughs> and the Ammonites, the incestuous descendants of Lot. 
Right. So why does Jude give us these stories? In his eyes, these three pericopes, these three stories, are all interconnected. And you, you can see how they are, right? Um, we've got the Nephilim that show up in all of them. We've got this sexual sin that pops up in all of them. We have the wrath of God that shows up. It's a multi-generational view of wickedness, faithlessness, and how these multiply the wrath of God. The accounts of the Son of God in Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrate how seriously God takes abominable sexual sin. The account of the Hebrews' unwillingness to take conquest of Canaan demonstrates how seriously God takes faithlessness and cowardice among his people, whom he calls to be his instruments. Both angles are in Jude's purview, as he seeks to embolden the faithful to contend for the faith and to address the wrath of God coming against his opponents. So we're going to end just a few minutes early today because that seemed like a, a very reasonable stopping point before we jump in next week talking about this very interesting account of Michael and the devil fighting over Moses' body. So I want to open it up uh, just to see what kinds of questions we have. Yeah, John. Yeah, good question. Um, certainly in church history, there have been those who did not view Jude as canonical, right? For the very reason that he is uh, relying heavily on source material that itself was not canonical. Um, it's a question that we asked actually in our, our first week together, which is how do we deal with the fact that Jude seems to rely so heavily upon this non-canonical text. Um, so in terms of why is it in the canon, well, it was historically received in the canon by, by the church, and that was recognized right um, at the Council of Nicaea. Um, it was written by the brother of Jesus, right? And we certainly know that one of the major criteria for acceptance into canon was was it written by an apostle, you know, or by a, a leader in that first generation of the church? And this very clearly was. Uh, certainly there have been those who have questioned the authorial legitimacy of Jude, right? They've called it pseudepigraphal. I don't believe that it's pseudepigraphal. Um, I think that we've got Jude, one of the very first letters that exists in the New Testament, um, right, And so there's certainly development happening because he can't say, well, look at what Paul said or look at what Peter said or look at what Luke wrote in his gospel right? because we don't have those written accounts circulating um, at that time. So my belief is that Jude is using Enoch and the assumption of Moses illustratively right, in the same way that I would give a sermon illustration. Um, my, my brother over here disagrees with me on that point a little bit, um, but we love each other and uh, we're, we're not going to throw each other under the bus here. 
Um, so my understanding of this book of Enoch, right, when I look at the 39 articles, the 39 articles show us what the canon of Scripture is. But then it says there are other books out there which are helpful. They help us understand context and culture, right? They teach us things about history. Um, they're not books upon which we're going to build doctrine and require people to believe it, okay? But they're still helpful. Um, and so that's how I would approach Enoch. So sorry for the second question. What, where was Jude pulling this material from? Was it in the Talmud or no, so the, the book of Enoch was very popular apparently, specifically in um, Galilee and Judea, um, starting sometime after the Maccabean revolt, revolt, but definitely during the time of, of Jesus. It's something that would have been read in synagogues, um, but it, again, was not considered part of canon. Exactly right. So it, it's kind of like, I, I don't know. I, I've been so outside of pop Christian culture for a while, I'm not sure. But can, can you think of a, a book that's not a biblical book that lots of Christians read and find helpful? Bad ones. Bad, well, sure, bad ones. But, but yeah, you know, and sometimes it's because it's so well known, it's helpful just to reference it, right? And to have conversations with people about it. So... Yeah. Good good question. I don't know if I answered your question or if I just gave you more questions. The shack. Yeah. All right. But we digress. I, I see a question back here, James. I don't have an answer for you about it. It's tricky. Yeah, so we've got the Nephilim who exist before the flood, and then we have what the people, uh, the, the post-exile Israelites believe are the Nephilim inhabiting the land of Canaan after the fact. And yet, Moses only tells us, right, that Moses, his wife, uh, and his sons survive. Now, obviously we know that there's, there's more of the story. Certainly when we go to the Pentateuch, Moses is not intending to tell us everything. Right? He, he couldn't possibly give us everything. What he's doing is giving us what we need right, to understand the big story, the big picture. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we have to walk away saying either option A, more people than Noah his wife and his sons survived the flood, which is why we have Nephilim in the land, or the people of <clears throat> the, the exilic uh, people of Israel were confused. They saw people who were really tall and just assumed that they were the descendants of the Nephilim. And I'm not going to take a stance on that today. Thank you very much. Yes, we got a question. So, yeah, that was what Enoch was writing, yes. If that happened, 
happened, if that was what happened in the first place, couldn't it have happened again? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think that there's <clears throat> what is possible and what is probable. Was it possible that something like that could happen again? Sure. Um, do I think it's probable? I don't really have anything from Scripture to, to base that off of. So, yes, sir. So, Jesus said in heaven, we are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I don't believe the giant interpretation of sex with angels and men is that you're talking about two completely different orders of creation. Sure. It's in principle impossible for right. angels to procreate women. So I, your interpretation that the, the Israelites were confused and just like, oh my gosh, it's the Nephilim. Right. I, I think it's like that. <laughs> yeah. They were mistaken. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, so, I mean, again, I can't emphasize enough. First Enoch is not canon. So we're not going to build any doctrine on it, right, that we all need to believe because it is not canonical scripture. It doesn't have that power. Yeah, I think I saw a question over here, but maybe. Before you start to jump on to the question about the book of the Bible referencing that extra canonical, there's quotes from the book of yeah. Absolutely. So Peter is actually relying heavily on Jude. So that's why this account shows up in Peter as well. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. I, I sometimes think about Paul when he's in Athens, right? And he sees the, the dedication to the unknown God. Right and and references that, so he's making a connection. He's he's connecting with his audience. It doesn't mean that he's ascribing to their theology. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Miguel. Do you know if there's a? I know that the canon of scripture. It's interesting to read references to the canon of scripture prior to like the fifth century. But do you know if there's like any patristic consensus about the Book of Enoch? It seems like the Old Testament is pretty consistent throughout most of the fathers yeah. in terms of their understanding. There's a reason that Enoch did not find his way into canon. And okay. that's because it was not received. So father, the fathers wouldn't have even been thinking about this question necessarily. Okay. Yeah. Any other questions? Good stuff. Well, thank you everybody. Hope you have a wonderful week and I will see you next Sunday.